Good to see everybody here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Uh, we've been in a short series during uh, the summer on the life of David, and uh, we've considered a number of passages. We looked at uh, 1 Samuel 17, we looked at David and Goliath, the great encounter uh, between those two men and David's great victory there. And then last week we looked at Psalm 23. And uh, this week we're going to look at Psalm 27, another psalm that is authored uh, by David, okay? So Psalm 27, if you don't have your Bible this morning, I encourage you to grab one. You should find one in front of you, in the chair in front of you, uh, and you'll find the passage on page 460, okay? Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? God, we're so grateful for your word. And we pray again now, as we do week after week, that you would come and be our help and our strength. That you would be our light and give us insight and wisdom and knowledge into your word. And Lord, we pray that by this word, this eternal word, that will never fade. Lord, we pray that we would be gloriously changed for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's been long acknowledged that even the most courageous experience fear. John Wayne, who had to be the ultimate courageous cowboy, right? He said, quote, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Or Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a World War I hero, said, Courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Well, we're in a series right now entitled Warrior Faith. And we've been looking at the remarkable faith of young David. Uh, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago when he faced the great giant Goliath and defeated him. 
And, and one of the questions we might ask in this series as we're looking at the faith of David is can a man like David, a man after God's own heart who possessed warrior faith, who bravely confronted the fierce great giant Goliath, can a man like that relate to my experience and struggle with fear and anxiety and worry? And it's apparent from this psalm and many other psalms that David wrote that the answer is yes. David experienced real fear and real worry and real anxiety. But it's what he did with that fear that makes him stand out as a man of faith, warrior faith. I want us to see in our passage this morning that a fearful David finds confidence in the Lord by seeking and waiting on the Lord. Okay, so that's the big idea. A fearful David finds confidence in the Lord by seeking and waiting on the Lord. And what I want you to see in terms of your own, so if you take that down now and press it into your own hearts and into your own lives, what I want us to see is that we do not have to be defined by fear and anxiety. But by God's grace, we can experience real freedom from fear and godly confidence in the Lord. We're going to consider our text in four parts, okay? So four parts, and here it is. This is our outline for this morning. Conflicted while seeking the Lord. That's the first part. Second, a singular passion for the Lord. Third, confidence in the Lord. And then fourth, wait on the Lord. Okay, and I'll be repeating those as we walk through the passage. So you'll, if you're taking notes and you missed one, we'll, we'll pick it up, okay, as we go along. First of all, let's look at conflicted while seeking the Lord. Look there in verses 1 and 2, and then again at 7 through 9. So verse 1 and 2, David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And then skip down to verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Now, this morning, we are looking at the psalm in four different parts. But many have seen this psalm in two major divisions, okay? Two major divisions. First division would be verses 1 through 6. And this division is marked by confidence. Uh, David is expressing here a strong confidence in the Lord. And then verses 7 through 14, which is the second half of the psalm, some say that here you have a very different mood in which David here, what is revealed here is David's struggle as he cries out to God for help and for deliverance. Now because of these two emphases of mood in the psalm, one of confidence in the first part, one of struggle in the second part, some critical scholars have claimed that Psalm 27 is really two psalms that later have been put together by an editor and placed side by side. I want you to see, though, that I don't, I don't think that there's any real reason to draw that conclusion. First of all, there's a number of similarities between the first major division and the second major division of this psalm. So, for example, you notice that in verse 2, 
Um, the enemies of David are spoken of in the first section in verse 2, and they're also spoken of in the second section in verse 12. In addition, David expresses his desire in the first section in verse 4 to seek after God in order to dwell in his house and gaze upon his beauty. And then that idea is repeated in the second section in verse 8 when David says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. And so these are just a couple of examples of how there are themes that run through the first division into the second division, significant themes that run through both sections that lead us to conclude that this psalm should be taken as a whole. But there's a larger point to make. We can argue it in terms of textual similarities between the two sections, but there's a larger point to be made. It seems to me that the critics in making this um, criticism of this psalm and saying that really it should be two psalms, that they have a deficient understanding of the human psyche, and that's really what underlies their criticism. In fact, I would say that it's actually dangerous to view the confidence that is expressed in verses 1 through 6 and the struggle that is expressed in verses 7 through 14 as mutually exclusive experiences. As if it is impossible to both wrestle with fear and at the same time possess confidence in the Lord. You see, I think that the critics claim that this must be two different psalms simply because they have a shallow understanding of the human psyche and religious experience. Can't you identify with the psalmist in this psalm? As one author has said, quote, Don't you find that you are both confident and anxious? Trusting and fearful? Or at least that your mood swings easily from one to the other? I do. It is part of what it means to be a weak human being. End of quote. I think here we see another example of how the Bible proves to be far more raw and authentic and consistent with human experience than modern critics. There's every reason, I believe, to conclude that Psalm 27 is composed by one author. David is honestly here articulating for us the fight of faith. And be assured, my friend, it is a fight. It is not always pretty. There is conflict involved. The soul is conflicted oftentimes. And it is a fight. So, we take this truth from the psalm that it's going to be a fight. There's conflict involved to be confident in the Lord. The second thing I want us to see from our psalm is a singular passion for the Lord. So, conflicted while seeking the Lord. And then secondly, a singular passion for the Lord. Look there in verse 4. We read these words, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then skip down to verse 8, and we read these words, you have said, seek my face, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Now you notice here the singularity of passion, right? One thing, David says, one thing. Have I asked of the Lord? At the end of the day, there's only one thing that David wants. One thing that he will seek after. But notice there, because this is, this is interesting. Notice there in the passage that right after David says this, he says, I want one thing, only one thing do I want from the Lord. And then he lists three things. 
Did you see that in the text? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. There's one. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There's two. And to inquire in his temple. There's three. Now, was David not good at math? Yeah. I'm sure David could count to three and knew the difference between one and three. But really what David is pointing to here is that the three things he expresses are really one thing, right? To dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple are all equated to experiencing the presence and blessing of God. That's what all those things mean. This is what David wants. He wants God. He wants God. That's the one thing he wants. He wants God's presence. He wants God's blessing. He wants the reality of God in his life. And if that's the case, if that's the one thing that David wants more than anything else, then why is there after that so much focus on the temple? Do you notice that in the passage? Look there in verse 4 through 6, and David refers to the temple five times. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek that I seek after, that I may dwell, here it is, in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, there it is again, for he will hide me in his shelter, that's another reference to the temple, in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, that's a reference to the temple. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent which again is a reference to the temple, sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, the reason I say that the tent is a reference to the temple is because initially God met with his people in the tabernacle, which was a tent, and then it later became a temple. And so when he's referring to the tent, he's referring to the same concept, same idea, the temple. So David is saying here, I want to go to the temple. I want to dwell at the tabernacle. This is what I want. And why? Because the tabernacle, later the temple, was the special place of God's dwelling with his people. This is where God's people gathered to offer sacrifices to God and to worship God. And God had promised to especially dwell with his people and meet with his people in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, you might naturally respond by saying, well, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere at all times? Why is there so much focus on this one place? Yes, it is true that God is everywhere at all times. But he has also chosen, at this point at least in salvation history, to especially be present and reveal himself and to relate to his people in the temple. And so David wants to be there. This is the one thing he wants, to encounter God in the temple. Now, from this point, I want to make three quick applications before we move on to our next point, okay? So, three quick applications. One, we should treasure the reality of God's presence and blessing more than anything else in life. We should treasure the reality of God's presence and blessing more than anything else in life. David is revealing to us here, and this is all over the pages of Scripture, that there is nothing more valuable in life than to know God. To know Him truly as He has revealed Himself. To know Him personally as Father, as friend, as a personal reality. 
And we will see how this has significant implications for how we deal with anxiety and fear. That's coming later. But at this point, just mark this, note this. There is nothing more valuable than to know God. And to pursue this one thing above all other things. Second application. Appreciate the value of gathering with other Christians for worship. Appreciate the value of gathering with other Christians to worship. Now as New Testament Christians, God's special presence is no longer confined to a unique location. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that God's Spirit, and this is an amazing teaching from the New Testament, that God's Spirit now dwells within the heart of every believer, and our bodies are now the temple of God. But at the same time, the New Testament does teach us that when God's people gather, when the church gathers together, something special takes place. Although it's different from Old Testament temple worship, the gathering of the New Testament church does have a special significance for today. God meets with us in a unique and special way as we gather together as His people for corporate worship. Now, it doesn't matter whether we do this in Jerusalem or in Atlanta, Georgia or in Augusta, Georgia, but when God's people gather together, there are unique opportunities that we encounter and unique ways that we can experience God in the corporate gathering of God's people that we cannot experience in isolation. There's the promise of God's Spirit to be among us as we gather corporately. There's the opportunity to approach the throne of God in prayer with others. There's the encouragement of singing songs together with one voice to God and to one another. There's the opportunity to hear the word of God preached. There's the blessing of participating in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are unique opportunities and we should be eager to take advantage of them. We shouldn't read a passage like this and say, oh, well, that was just Old Testament, you know. David wanted to go to the temple. That's passe. That's behind us now. No. It has application for us today. Gathering with God's people to worship on Sundays should be a priority in our lives. It should be a regularly scheduled event on our calendars. And we should protect that appointment. We also can say, with joy in our hearts, as the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because when we gather with God's people for worship, we have the opportunity to encounter God. Third application. We can only experience the reality of God's presence and blessing through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can only experience the reality of God's presence and blessing through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, why did God, in the Old Testament, David's saying, this is the one thing I want. I want to go to the temple so I can encounter God, so I can meet with God. And why did God say, in the Old Testament, that he would especially meet with his people at the tabernacle or the temple? Well, in large place, because this was the place of sacrifice. You see, this is the reason why we cannot experience the blessing and presence of God in our own lives, is because we are sinners we can't approach, and the Bible teaches us this everywhere, we cannot approach a holy and transcendent God because we are stained with sin. 
And we are unfit for his presence. And so the people went to the temple to offer sacrifices for their sin. Symbolically, the animal sacrifice would assume the sin of the sinner and die in the sinner's place so that the sinner might be forgiven and approach God. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats could never fully atone for sin. It was only a pointer, a temporary solution. And the real answer came in Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It's on the cross that Jesus freely took upon himself our sin and offered the perfect and final sacrifice for our sin. It's by his death that our sin is atoned for and accounted for and paid for. And by his sacrifice, we can now enter into the very presence of God and know his blessing and know his favor. Listen, if you trust in Jesus and you trust in his sacrifice, then we can say in many ways the temple becomes irrelevant to you because it's through faith in Jesus that God's Spirit now takes residence in you, that your sin is forgiven, that you can enter into the presence of God and know His blessing and know His presence. So as significant as the temple was to knowing and experiencing the presence of God in the Old Testament, the cross is even more significant for us today. If we want to know and experience the presence of God, then we must go to the cross again and again and again and again because it's there that we are atoned for, our sins are atoned for. We are made right with God and we can experience Him. So those are the three applications. Okay, so first point, conflicted while seeking the Lord. Second point, a singular passion for the Lord. And we made three applications and then third, a confidence in the Lord. A confidence in the Lord. Look there at the psalm, and I want you to look at verse 1, 3, and then 10. So look at verse 1, and we read these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. In all of these verses, you sense David's confidence in the Lord. Notice here, though, and I believe this principle is taught in this psalm and is taught in the larger scope of Scripture, that David's singular passion for the Lord here and his confidence in the Lord are connected. So he had this singular passion for the Lord. I want one thing, right? That is, in fact, connected and related to his then confidence in the Lord. You see, David's singularity of focus means that ultimately he has nothing to lose. If the one thing I seek is God, if the one thing I seek is his presence and is his blessing, then no one or nothing can take that away from me. If I am his and he is mine, then David could say that the worst thing that could happen to me is death, which would only open up a deeper reality and experience of God's presence and blessing. So if I ultimately want him above all other things, then I have nothing to fear. You know, how to overcome worry and anxiety is a very relevant and popular topic in our day, and 
if you read or listen to most modern help uh, leaders and literature, typically you might find them saying, if you're struggling with anxiety or fear, then the way you need to handle that is just consider that whatever it is that you are fearful of may never happen to you. So don't think about it. Instead, what you should do is visualize for yourself a preferred future, and then you won't worry. So don't think about what you are worrying about, and then visualize for yourself a preferred future, and you will experience relief from anxiety and fear. I want you to notice, though, that David's approach in this psalm is different. First of all, notice that David does reflect on his hope of God's future deliverance, so a preferred future, right? But his reflection on a preferred future is not without reference. It's not just wishful thinking, but rather it is his his looking to a preferred future rest in his hope of an, in a sovereign and loving God who is able to act in history on his behalf. It's grounded in something. It's grounded in God. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just throwing your lot in with faith. It, with fate. It's not just rolling the dice on random chance, but it is grounded in the reality of a personal God who loves him. And because it's grounded in that, David can say, with confidence I look forward to the future, trusting that God will, in fact, who loves me and cares for me, he will, in fact, act on my behalf. So David looks to a preferred future, resting in the reality of who God is. But notice also, in addition to that, David actually looks to the future and imagines the worst. Do you see that in the psalm? He doesn't imagine the best all the time. He even imagines the worst. He imagines the worst circumstances. Look there in verse 2. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat my flesh, that's not a good day. Right? There's a group of guys, they get together, they say, we want to get him and eat his flesh. That's not a good day. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, The war rise against me. Here, David is imagining the worst of circumstances. And even then, he says, my heart shall not fear. And I will be confident. Notice also that he imagines the worst relational heartache. Verse 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me. Now, in the ESV, this is stated as though it has in fact happened. It's possible that this could be translated as a hypothetical as well. That it's not yet a reality, but something that David is imagining might happen, right? So whether it's a reality that has already taken place or a hypothetical that he is uh, 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 presuming may happen, he says there, though my mother and father have forsaken me, or for my mother and father have forsaken me, then he says, but the Lord will take care of me. He will take me in. So even if my own father and mother forsake me, God will care for me. Now, how can David make such statements? And I think it goes back to this. Because ultimately, David wants one thing. He wants one thing. It's not that these things don't matter to him. It's not that David is 
indifferent to whether war will come against him or whether his mother and father forsake him. No, they matter deeply to him, and that's why he mentions them. But they are not ultimate. What is ultimate cannot be taken from him. And so he can look at even the worst eventualities in the eyes and say, God is enough. I want one thing. Even if the most valued things of this life are taken from me, he is enough. And that's freedom. You know, there's a number of Christian leaders and authors that have helped me understand the subtlety of idolatry in my own heart. A couple of guys are David Pallison, who's a biblical counselor, and another's Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. And I think it relates very much so to this passage. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our hearts. It can be something that is sinful, but it can also be something that is very good. It's anything that becomes more valued to us, more valuable, or, or anything that we treasure more in our hearts than God. And I think it's very important to, to grasp this insight that when good things become the one thing, that's when we experience anxiety. When good things become the one thing, the ultimate thing, that's when we experience anxiety. In this sense, we could say that anxiety, in one sense, is a good thing because if we follow our anxieties back far enough then we will discover our idols. Let me illustrate this. Look at verse 3. David says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. We need to ask ourselves that the possibility of conflict or the possibility of danger, are we overwhelmed with anxiety and fear? I mean, an initial fear or initial concern in a situation like that is a good thing. I mean, it tells us that something's not right, something needs to change, maybe we need to do something. But does the prospect of conflict or danger immobilize you? You can't sleep, you can't function, you can't move forward in obedience because you're consumed with fear. And at that point, I think we have to seriously ask the question, has the one thing in our heart become peace and safety rather than God? Do you want peace and safety more than you want God himself? And because we can't guarantee peace and because we can't guarantee safety, then we're undone with anxiety. For notice verse 10, David says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, let me say, this is, I want to be careful here because I know this is very, very personal. I know that many of you have felt forsaken by father or mother, and the pain of that is very real and deep and understandable. It's right that you would experience pain in a situation like that. But for the person who says, you know, this is just too much, it's too much pain, it's, it's too significant, I refuse to be comforted. I refuse to find peace in this. That person will remain anxious and bitter the rest of their lives. And why? Because it's even possible. It's even possible that the one thing 
the one thing has become parental love, parental approval, which is a good thing, a wonderful thing, an awesome thing. It is something we should desire and should want, but it is not the ultimate thing. And when even that, such a good thing as parental love and approval and care, when that becomes the ultimate thing, it can distort our souls. And where there should be comfort and where there should be peace, there'll be fear and there'll be unrest. Notice what David says here. It's remarkable. Even if my father and my mother forsake me, I will not be defined by my family history. I will not be defined by the actions of my father or my mother. But I will be defined by one thing. And that is my relationship with the Lord and his love for me. Who what? Will take me in and never leave me and never forsake me. If you don't go there... If you don't go there and make God the ultimate thing, then other things will become ultimate. Even good things like parental love and approval. And you'll be trapped. Confidence in God, we see, allows us to face even the worst eventualities of life with faith and with hope. Notice fourth in our passage, just the fourth and last point. Wait on the Lord. Look there in verses 13 and 14. We read these words. I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So one of the things I want you to see here is that in contrast to the events of David and Goliath, because there, it is a contrast, David and Goliath, there is a decisive victory, right? And it's ended. So there's this great giant. David goes out there with faith. He fights him. Goliath is dead. The Philistines are fleeing. And David is celebrated as a great warrior. And sometimes we might get the idea that that's what the life of faith is like. And sometimes it is. But this psalm does not end that way, right? In some ways, as we come to the last point here, we're back to the first point. David is confident, but he's also conflicted. You hear it there in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here's confidence. Here's great faith. But then in verse 14, you see that he starts to preach to himself, right? You get the sense that his confidence, his faith is in danger of wavering. And he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We learn here in this psalm and so many others that the life of faith does not always resolve itself with a quick solution like David and Goliath did. This is where we leave the psalmist. He's fighting the fight of faith. He's seeking one thing with all his heart. He's preaching the promises of God to his heart and he's waiting for God's salvation. In the midst of seeking the Lord and waiting for the Lord, he is finding confidence to rest in the Lord. This is warrior faith. And get this, warrior faith is rarely celebrated on a battlefield in a glorious victory. Rather, it is engaged in a battle in the quiet of our minds and our hearts every day. That's where warrior faith takes place. Every day, 
in the quiet of your own mind and heart? Are you engaged in that battle? Are you fighting it? Are you after one thing and as your heart veers and gives yourself to other things, are you putting your heart back on that one thing and pursuing that one thing and enjoying the freedom and the joy of knowing that it can never be taken away from you? Never. And so resting confidently in God and who He is. Let's pray and ask God to give us grace to engage in that battle. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for how relevant and real it is to our everyday lives. God, I pray now that you would take your word and that um, in no way would it be distorted or misused in our own hearts, in our own minds. Lord, I pray that you would give clarity and understanding and wisdom in the application of your word. And Father, as we've even from this psalm seen some very personal things emerge and be revealed, oh Lord, give us grace to deal with the idols of our hearts in ways that honor you and that lead to freedom, that lead to confidence and faith in you. Father, give us hearts that pursue you and long for you above all other things. Lord, may we find rest and confidence in you. And Father, I do pray for those who are here this morning who may have a desire to, in one sense, be here, hear about God, engage God at one level or another, but have never encountered Jesus Christ, have never put their faith and trust in His perfect sacrifice for their sins. Oh Lord, as David knew that he could not know you unless he went to the temple, the place of your designation, and offered sacrifices for his sins that you had prescribed, May we know that we cannot come to you. We cannot engage you and enter your presence and know your blessing apart from the person of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he has made for us. Lord, may we look to Christ in faith. May everyone in this room do so and follow him and pursue him with all their hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.